This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. I've not decided whether I'm an old man yet. I've got a second set of glasses, so I'm either going to be able to see my notes and not see you, or I'm going to be able to see you and not see the notes. So I've not decided yet. We'll see where we go, but morning all, particularly to you in the hall and to visitors and people we've seen before, so it's great to see you. Um, My name's Steve, whatever that means. But for you guys on the lens, I've got no idea what to say to you because it could be morning, evening or night, so hi. You know, so this is session 123 in the Promise and Purpose series here at Hope Church, Malmesbury. And this is our methodical some would say slightly slow, jaunt through the book of Luke. But we are getting there. Michelle is my wife, and we did not prepare the worship and this word together. But we spoke about it last night. You did read the sermon yesterday after, after the word was prepared, and it just joins. It's just amazing how good God is. It really is. So, before we jump into the word, we have a little bridge, we call it, which is if anybody would like to bring a testimony or something God has done in their lives this week. So, if you're brave enough, or if you're not, I could always take the microphone to you, but then that would destroy what the guys online could see. But has anybody got a testimony or a word? Howard, I can always trust you, mate. How are you doing? Right. So Mark mentioned Fairford. Mm. Well, for 23 years I've been attending. I've only missed a few. As an exhibitor there, I have to be there half past six in the morning to half past eight at night. I had a phone call Friday night to say I had a choice whether I went or not, as our exhibition had been blown down on Friday. I wouldn't have had anywhere to stand, and I'd have been there till very late at night. So. Yesterday, I chose not to go. But God blessed me with a wonderful day. Um, I spent it with Sue, my wife. We attended Shurston Bulls Day, and we had a real good laugh. We enjoyed it, and we met some friends there as well. We were here this morning. (laughs) So that's one blessing. The second one I wanted to share a couple of weeks ago. Um, We are musicians on my side of the family, and um, Christians as well. I have two brothers. One has run the music shop and joined a church in Chippenham for many, many years. The middle brother lives in Birmingham. Um, About uh, 25 years ago, his first wife had a a brain tumour, and after about four years having had a major operation, she died. Unfortunately, that affected Gerald's relationship with his God and Saviour. 
He was the Salvation Army officer at that point, which is equivalent to a minister. And he moved away, and the whole family turned their back on God. This, this was very difficult, very difficult. We've been praying him for years. He occasionally goes to listen to the Salvation Army band, which he used to play in. But he came down to visit us two weeks ago. And just in conversation, he mentioned that he and his second wife go now to a Church of England. Right, so that's, that's good. And someone knew that he was a musician. He's now playing the piano in that church and he's beginning to build his relationship Praise with God. God. Yeah, amazing. God is good. All the time? Yeah, there we go, that works. This is going to be a bit transactional, but it's also going to be a bit of, you know, get involved with me, you know, I'm like that. Anyone else got anything to raise? No? Oh, 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 come on, I knew you were going to. Go on. No, um, hello, I'm Lydia. I'm one of the senior pastors here, so I really want to issue a very big welcome because I didn't catch you on the way in um, to the uh, visitors this morning. But um, I just, I, I think it's just worth saying on a regular yeah. basis um, that, you know, this is a, a space where we come to God. Um, I, I went into the prayer meeting, only Richard was in there when I first arrived, and he read to me Romans 12, verse 1, uh, which is about us presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to God. What a great way to start a Sunday morning. This is what we come to do. And children, we keep you in here, not as a punishment... <laughs> not as a, oh, I've got to get through the worship, I've got to get through that music bit, but actually because we believe that it's actually a really important part of the whole uh, experience of spending time with God. Our worship is important, whether we feel it or not. So I love some of those songs where the lyrics say, even when we don't feel it, you're working. Absolutely. Our feelings need to be put on the back burner and we need to come into the presence of God and just experience whatever he wants. And what I really got from that Romans 12 verse 1 was this, it's between me and God. It's not about you. I don't care if you're here or not. I mean, I, I do as a pastor, but I don't <laughs> as a person before Jesus because it's about me and God. And it's about you and God, whether you're standing at the piano or not. It's about you and God. It's yeah. about every one of us and God. And so children, it's about you and God as well. So I hope you never feel like the worship is the punishing part that you have to just get through. And we keep you in here in case something shared from the microphone sparks life in you as well in this bit. And then we Absolutely. send you out for your teaching when we receive our teaching. So I just really have to say, children, you are welcome in this place. We care about you. You are growing up to know about Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. You get to make the choice that some people don't even know is a choice for them. And we appreciate you. And it's okay if you drop things, make noises, uh, cry out. When the babies cry out, 
Hallelujah, they are worshipping Jesus. They're using their lungs in church. It's okay. And I need to just make you all feel really, really welcome this morning. I don't know why, but I just had that sense. (laughs) Because it's between you and Jesus, between me and Jesus, between each one of us and Jesus. We are all here because of Jesus. So let's pray them out. Are you happy to pray or shall I? You go for it. Okay. Father God, I want to thank you for the children of this church and for the teenagers too, Lord God. We see them. We know them. We know that you see them and you appreciate them. Lord God, that your heart sings when you see them in this place. So I pray, Lord God, that as they go out to their ministry, Lord God, that they will be blessed. Lord God, that they will grow in you, Lord God, and that they will know the reality of life with you, which is so much better than life alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lydia. Yep, off you go. Andrea's leading out there. If anyone's got anybody that wants to follow there, please do. It's amazing. We've got a visitor here, or a couple of visitors back with us who were with us a number of months ago and we didn't have a children's ministry and it was through a a throwaway conversation that we've got one now and they sat in the back row that's it's quite quite scary but amazing god is good absolutely good is this side warmer or something than this side Uh, that's exactly where i was thinking tea and coffee's there i get it promise Right, we're going on a journey together, okay? It's, it's going to take as long as it does, but this is... I'm going to put some context into the verse we're going to look at first. So before I do that, let's just open in prayer, please. So Lord, may our hearts and our ears be open to what you want us all to hear, and let my words be your words. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So context, the scripture we're going to look at today is Luke 20, verses 9 to 18, the parable of the wicked tenants. And today's message is titled, The Rejected Stone. The parable, this parable, is recorded also in Matthew and Mark, and it's worth taking a look at them. They give the same story, but because they're written by different people, you get a slightly different context. But predominantly, we're going to be looking at Luke today. So, for visitors and for those guys online that haven't followed this, it might be worth you going back online and looking through some of the sermons, but a quick pricey of where we've been. So, as we've heard over the previous weeks, much emotion, excitement, tension, and drama was played out during the preceding hours and days before this parable. Jesus has entered Jerusalem on a donkey with much fanfare, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9. He has been hailed as the Messiah by the adoring crowds. Everyone was enjoying the party. Well, not everyone. Jesus had a moment. He wept over the city. And the religious leaders, the elite, of course, true to form, just look at every other encounter we've had with them through this journey. We're looking down on the celebration with disdain and we're astonished and angry that this mere mortal man in their eyes was being hailed and prophesied as the Messiah. Leaving his donkey behind somewhere, hopefully with water and shelter because it was a bit warm, 
Jesus is now in the midst of the temple. It's Tuesday. And he's already kicked out the sellers and the buyers in not so gentle a way as we've heard. He's blocked the entrance. And now he's set up shop. He's preaching his gospel to all the people there. He's now turned his attention onto and is challenging the chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the elders, the religious elite who have been sent to confront Jesus yet again. Last week, Mark covered the failed intimidation tactic used by these elite, where they tried to trap Jesus, questioning his authority. Jesus responded with a question of his own about John, which the religious elite refused to answer. So in turn, Jesus did not answer their question. Now, whether this is just me, when I'm talking to God, or this is for others as well, I'll ask God a question, and he generally goes, here's a question back for you, which makes me think a bit about what I'm asking, and am I asking the right thing? Just made me think that did there. So we might not get the answer we expect. We might get a question. But we need to listen. So another one of Jesus' parables. In fact, it's his last parable. The one before he was murdered on the cross just 72 hours after he spoke these words. There's a trend to Jesus' teaching, have you noticed? Parables. So I've said this before in a few, few messages I've given previously, but just going over what a parable is. But first of all, I say this was a little bit interactive. How many parables did Jesus tell? Oh, it is. It's one of those. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Who's going to be first and give me a number? 110. 110. 110. I'm going to be an auctioneer now. 110. 110. 110. 27. 22. You have read the script. You're not allowed to look at this. You're going to get no answers. 18? 18. It's interesting. Because it's really interesting. There's not one answer to this, amazingly. It's another one of those theological debates. It depends on how you bound what a parable is. There are those who will tell you that there, and the only answers I could get were there are more than 20 or there are more than 50. So give yourselves a clap, you've all got it right. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, isn't it? But regardless, we shouldn't be focusing on the number here. We should be focusing on his teaching within those that we recognize as parables. And he used this way of teaching over and over again. Why? So in Luke 8 verse 10, it tells us, because he's explaining the purpose of the parable to his disciples. The knowledge of, of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. But to, do, to, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. In other words, a story that people can relate to, or not, because God reveals things to us in his time. Parables are packed full of wisdom and references to scripture and pull no punches. Parables, simple and straightforward? I don't think so. I think for anybody that's really dug into a parable, it's mind-blowing what these are full of. But they're a great example of the living word because they can be interpreted differently by everybody, even if we've heard them before. 
They are thought-provoking, challenging and life-changing. Everything Jesus intended. Jesus uses parables and the ambiguity because he knows that we are all different and that they speak to us all in different ways at the right time. So got that? There's a message here for you. So let's turn to the scripture, Luke 20, verses 9 to 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a while. When the time came, he sent out a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send out my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is so full of stuff. This. And I've, I've tried to condense what I believe God is trying to tell us today. But I would encourage you to really dig into this parable across the three gospels you find it in. So this, in, in summary though, this parable is intended as an analogy to show that mere, merely being an Israelite was not enough for access to the kingdom of heaven. But the true heart worship of God and ultimately Jesus was key. It also shows how God has continued to speak to the Israelites through the prophets, but they continued to reject God. It then foresees God's ultimate rescue plan, Jesus' death on the cross. Cleverly, but not unsurprisingly, Jesus indirectly answers the previous question about his authority by using this parable and showed the religious elite that he's talking to at this point that he knows about their rejection and that they're about to kill him. And he's telling them there are consequences to this action. It's a rather diplomatic parable that reads more like a story in which all the elements are direct symbols. Jesus made sure the characters in the parable were, and for us today, easily identifiable so that the religious elite understood who and what he was referring to. We will walk through the parable verse by verse, focusing on what it meant at the time and what it means to us today. So, Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. And that's Jesus. 
A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, we get reference to man, he, and owner of the vineyard. Interactive time, who's that? Who's the owner of the vineyard, he, and the man? You whispered it, you could shout it out, it is, it's God. You're not wrong, it's Yahweh. So straightforward as that, dead straightforward, God. Okay? So God is the owner and creator of all things. In this instance, he's the owner of the vineyard. So we're reminded of that in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He is our creator. What's the vineyard? It's Israel. Okay? So Israel is referred to as a vineyard many times throughout the Bible. We only have to look at, and hopefully be on the screen, Isaiah 5 verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It's also repeated in Psalm 80 and the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13 verses 6 to 9. But a repetition of the message sort of gives us a confidence that the vineyard is Israel. This symbol of the nation state of Israel, God's chosen people. Like the vineyard that is owned by the man, Israel is owned and managed by the Lord God, who wants Israel to grow in holiness and fruitfulness. God's chosen nation reflecting God's glory and holiness to the world. However, Israel often turned its back on God. When we take a look at Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 6, and particularly verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield no grapes? Israel was not doing what was expected of it. So, Luke 20, verses 10, 11, and 12. When, time, when the time came, he sent out a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treat him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and guess what? This one also was wounded and cast out. So God sent out the servants, three in total. Who are the servants? The prophets. Excellent. Good. I can go home now. I'm done. They are. They are the prophets of the Old Testament who were sent by God to Israel to speak the word of God and hold Israel to account. The interpretation of three is a topic of much debate and further research. May I suggest that three times simply represents God's persistence and loving desire for his relationship with his people. He hasn't just done it once, he's done it twice, he's continuing, he's always there, he's yearning for that relationship with us. And we find this message repeated again in the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13, and that's where Jesus intercedes, if you know the parable there, where God tries three times to get fruit from the vine and I'm going to cut it down. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. 
let me have a go. And there's parallels with the two parables here. So this is pointing to the minor and major prophets. I'm not going to ask you how many they were, because <laughs> that's another topic of debate. However, these special messengers were not treated well, which is an understatement. You just read the parable there. And in this part of the parable, Jesus is reminding his audience and some of, about some of the history and how Israel has treated their prophets, which is why the kingdom of God was going to be taken away from them. And there's going to be more on this shortly. It's not just going to be taken away from them. It's going to be given to others. Well, that's quite exciting. Hold on to that one. So to the tenants. Who are the tenants? The religious leaders. Absolutely the Jewish. Absolutely. So these are the religious elite. So... When we look back in those days, the owner let out the vineyard to the tenants and left them by themselves because the owner was away. They were trusted and were responsible for doing the work that made the vineyard productive and fruitful. In this parable, they are the, Israeli, the, 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 the religious leaders who have been entrusted with the spiritual care and development of Israel and God's people. They were the caretakers of Israel. So, they are the tenants. And they would give some fruit of the vineyard. Now, this was a normal practice that it was expected at the time that in return for empowering the tenants to tend the vineyards, the owners would expect and enter an agreement to receive some of the harvest and fruit. This was the same for the religious leaders that God had entrusted as caretakers over Israel. He was expecting, God was expecting to see fruit. And that goes back to Isaiah 5 verse 4. Fruit is often a term. What's fruit often a term for? It's used in the Bible for the outworkings of a life surrendered to God. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 verses 1 to 23... Those whose roots grew deep into the good soil produced fruit 30, 60, 100 times over. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he lists the fruit of the Spirit, positive characteristics of those who allow the Holy Spirit to work through their lives. Or as Paul prays for the Colossians in Colossians 1 verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So let's move on to Luke 20, verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send out my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. I think we know that plays out, don't we? God was then and is today yearning for a loving relationship with us all. So much so that even after so much rejection and rebellion, he thought of another way, the final way, the only way in which to try to connect. I will send my beloved son. This message echoes that given in the parable of the barren fig tree again, where the gardener Jesus intercedes for us. The religious elite was saying, to the religious elite, he was saying, 
This is me, the prophesied Messiah. I am here. So who is the beloved son? Jesus. It's Jesus. The Messiah, Jesus, is the beloved son. And he's referring to himself. In the parable, Jesus has the owner, God, referring to his beloved son. Again, an incredible synergy and reminder of the moment at Jesus' baptism when his father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that's in Luke 3.22 and Matthew 3.17. Let's just take a moment to reflect. Even knowing that he was about to be betrayed, subjected to injustice, and die in the most unimaginably painful and horrific way, crucifixion, he still considered himself beloved by his Father. What a lesson for us all. Rather than focusing on the negatives in the situations we find ourselves in, we should be following Jesus' example and focusing on our loving Father. His love and grace never ending for those in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Jesus knew he was about to be murdered, yet he knew he was loved. Just soak that in for a moment. The trials we find ourselves in, we are loved. And we just need to focus on that. Luke 20, verses 14 and 15. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance is ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Here, Jesus highlights the wickedness and hardness of hearts of the religious leaders. Their knowledge of scripture was huge, but despite this, they had chosen not to see Jesus and the fulfillment of the scriptures and recognize him as the Messiah. Rather, their selfish hearts chosen, rather, they had selfish hearts choosing to be the Lord's in their own world. They were focusing selfishly on themselves rather than leaders with the servant heart God desired. As Christians, our focus must be not selfish gain. We must ensure that we serve with love, compassion and grace for the fulfillment of God's kingdom and the inheritance of eternal life through Christ Jesus. We look at John 1 verse 9 to 11. The true light which gives light to everybody was coming to the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. Do we receive him? This parable's got quite a powerful message about this. Most importantly, Jesus reveals in this, these, these um, parts of this part of the parable, he knows that they were about to kill him. It's a clear allusion to his approaching death. 
Turning back to his religious elite, he asks, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? If they disobey, what will they do? So we look at verse 16 as it continues. They will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Can you imagine the tension at this point? The religious leaders had set themselves up as role models. To be and live like them was to become close to God. Yet Jesus shows them and he's telling them in no uncertain terms that their rejection of him would ultimately bring punishment and judgment upon them. I'm convinced that the surely not wasn't, surely not. <laughs> I'm convinced it was a cry of surely not. I'm not going to shout, Richard, you're okay. <laughs> Can you imagine it? They are being told everything you've done is wrong. But they thought they were saved. What have they done wrong? They must have been thinking. They must have thought that they thought they were caretakers. But Jesus exposed their selfish heart. They were only caretakers of themselves, not caretakers of God's people. This verse continues. God will destroy those tenants. In a primary sense, this happened during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But in a fuller sense, I believe this is referring to the final judgment. Jesus concludes the parable here by telling the religious elite that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them and given to another nation, others. Who's that? And you on the screen. It's his church. This other nation is his church. The new kingdom of Jesus made up of believers from all walks of life. We're not the same, are we? We are from all walks of life. How amazing is that? Jew or Gentile. And this is us. He alludes to the new covenant where all people are able to have access to God through Jesus. <laughs> the way Jesus responds to the surely not statement is inspirational. If I had been in this situation, now I don't know about you guys, I would have been like, come on guys, you're the religious leaders charged by God with looking after and nurturing Israel. You know your scriptures, right? You know what I've just told you, but they're almost proving they're not focused in the right way here. You know the Psalms, don't you? So when we come to verses 17 and 18, so verse 17, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And verse 18, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Wow. Verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them. Could you imagine again the intensity of this moment? This is Jesus. Can you imagine it? Oh, all right. Okay. Right. I've got you. You want to say something. 
This is a personal message directed at them from Jesus. Looking right at them, he was making his next statement personal. And back then, he was doing that, and he's doing it to us today. You are rejecting the cornerstone, the Messiah, me, Jesus. You are rejecting me. And by the way, your question about authority, is the message clear enough yet? I'm the cornerstone. This is back in Psalm 118, which we're about to look at. The builders, who are the religious elite, are wise and knowledgeable. After all, they were put in a position of leadership, but they rejected the stone as unsuitable for purpose, almost probably because it wasn't suitable for their purpose. The builders were wrong in their judgment. Jesus is calling out to them. Only 72 hours away from his impending death, he's calling out to them. You can change. I am here. So here Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's emphasizing that he is the rejected stone. Psalm 118 in its entirety is a messianic psalm about God's chosen king who will triumph over his enemy. Interestingly, and just as a bit of a side, this, this parable is also quoted in Acts 4 and in Peter 2. So another repetition of message. It's quite important to get our head around it, one would suggest. So in Acts 4, verse 11, this is when Peter and John uh, are witness before the Jewish council. The stone that you builders rejected, so he's talking to the Jewish council, has now become the cornerstone. Peter said that the Jew had rejected Jesus, but now Christ had come, become the cornerstone of the church. Without them, without him, there will be no church because it would not be able to stand. So engineering head on, Richard, please bear with my rubbish analogies. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> so what's a cornerstone? So hopefully there's a bit of a slide going to come up. I like this picture. And the reason that brought this up is because, would you believe there's a whole load of theological debate about what the cornerstone is? And it's one of those three. There's a cornerstone in the bottom corner of the building, the foundation. It's the keystone which stops the arch collapsing, or it's the capstone. The debate comes from the following verses, which talks about crushing and falling, which I personally don't believe it links quite that way, and I'll try and reason through where my thinking goes but ultimately the psalmist here is using an image from ancient building practices which is probably from when the new build temple itself he observed how they built the temple and they start with the cornerstones the four corners because that sets the dimension it sets the stability it's the foundation of the building so in my mind it's the red one it's the cornerstone I say there's much debate here, um, but ultimately, if any one of those fails, the building will fail. And I think that's the message. 
A real-life real example of a failure of a building, not too far from here, which was completed in 1180. Any ideas what building in Malmesbury was completed in 1180? The Abbey. And in 1500, it was struck by lightning, and two-thirds of it no longer is there. And the spire fell down the main street, so we're told. I'm not getting into a theological debate here about the Church of England versus Free Church, okay? That's not the piece. This is about a building that was built incorrectly and couldn't weather the storm. That building collapsed through a storm. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church and our faith and our relationship with him. This message is repeated throughout the Bible. And should be another little uh, slide coming up here about the cornerstone. And this is in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. There's no point in reading the words out there. I think you all know them. But without that stone, without the cross, the death and the resurrection, we're nothing. We're not going to weather a storm. With that foundation, we can withstand anything that comes our way. If our foundation is not Christ Jesus and some of the defective cornerstone, then the storms will come and we will fail, trip and be crushed, as it states in verse 18. So everyone who falls, so back to the, the verse, means everyone who stumbles at and rejects Jesus as the Messiah. When it falls on anybody, refers to Christ coming back in judgment. This was a comment focused on the religious elite who had clearly rejected Jesus and the truth that we must understand today. In 1 Peter 2, verse 8, the scriptures also say, he is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that will make them fall. We need to just get ahead around this. Jesus isn't here to make us stumble and fall. We stumble and fall over Jesus through our disbelief. He isn't there to trap us. This isn't what this is about. And it has been interpreted that way a few times by people and commentators. We stumble and fall. Not Christ there to make us stumble and fall. So some, some will stumble over Christ because they reject him or refuse to believe that he is who he says he is. A bit like the Pharisees. A bit like the religious elite we're talking about here. But Psalm 118, 22 says the stone has been rejected. But most importantly, that stone is the cornerstone of the church. So there's no excuse for us to not believe in Jesus Christ. We've got it in the word. It was foreseen back in the Old Testament. And everything he's played out to this point, a mere 72 hours before he's crucified, completes the story. Those who refuse to believe in Christ have and are making the greatest mistake of their lives. Old statement, but I believe it. They have stumbled, they have fallen over the one person, Jesus, whose death and resurrection can and will save them. It will crush him. Jesus seems to be using the imagery of Isaiah 8, verses 14 and 15, and Daniel 2, verse 45. 
These passages seem to envision the final judgment of those who reject the stone. All of those who reject Jesus' place in God's plan and acting in opposition to God's purpose will be judged accordingly. However, through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, that's the triumph, his resurrection, we are saved and he will intercede for our judgment. Our deserved judgment, by the way. He will intercede for our judgment. God loves us so much that he has given us Jesus as the only way to salvation. And we must make a decision here. Either fall at the first hurdle and reject Jesus, accepting the consequence, or accept Jesus as our cornerstone and assurance of eternal life. Jesus showed the unbelieving leaders that their rejection of the Messiah had been prophesied in Scripture. Ignoring the cornerstone was dangerous. A person could be tripped, fall or crushed, judged and punished. Jesus' comments were veiled, but the religious leaders had no issue in interpreting them. Spoiler alert for next week. This is Jesus' last parable, told only 74 hours, 72 hours before he was crucified. But his death was not the end. He rose from the dead three days later, the triumphant king, as prophesied, our Lord and Saviour, the cornerstone of the church. So to summarise, I'm nearly there. Through this parable, Jesus alludes that he is very aware of the vast drama that had played out and was playing about in Israel at that time. But he showed it in the context of God's eternal plan. From the moment of the fall, God had pursued his people Israel, trying to draw them back to him. And in the ultimate move of reconciliation, he sends his only son. He warns of dire consequences of rejecting Jesus, but also looks forward to the new covenant where access to God is for everyone. Hallelujah. Whether Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, through Jesus. Jesus shows that he is the cornerstone on which the church is built. Without Jesus, God's people, we cannot stand. So how does this apply to us today? Have we accepted Jesus into our lives? Rejecting the stone, being good or being religious is not enough. Jesus wants a personal relationship with us. As Christians, are we building our life on Jesus as the cornerstone in everything we do? When he is our cornerstone, our lives are transformed and based on a firm foundation, secure in the knowledge of salvation through God's love, grace and sacrifice of his beloved son. When our days are done, we will go to live with him in the Father's house. Have we rejected the stone? Or have we accepted the stone? John 3.16 to conclude. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If I can invite the worship group to lead us through one last song. And unsurprisingly, the song is Cornerstone. Please do as you will. We sit, we stand, we join in, but just drink in the words to this song. And just, are there any strongholds that you need to give to God at this point? Is God, is Jesus your cornerstone, my cornerstone? Amen. Please. Me again. Um, <laughs> I just had such a strong picture um, that I just need to share it. Um, if you imagine the cornerstone is the foundation of the building, it's what you put the walls on. And I think God's saying some of us have built the walls around it. And that's why we stumble over it, because it's in the wrong place. It's sitting in the middle of the sitting room instead of in the wall, okay? It's supposed to be what we've put, built our life upon, and instead it's just there. And so I think that's a challenge for some of us. As we sing that song, let's really try and get God, get Jesus back in his rightful place. We need to build our walls of our lives, build our lives on the stone. And I just, I don't, yeah, I hope that's okay. But I just, it was such a strong picture Amazing. that I believe is for probably several of us here or, or online. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Amen, amen.